Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the show, we're discussing the recent ASRM Practice Committee document update on obesity and reproduction. To guide us in this conversation is Dr. Christina Boots, who's an assistant professor, Northwestern Fertility and Reproductive Medicine in Illinois, and also is one of the authors on this update. Dr. Boots, welcome to ASRM Today. Thank you. Excited to be here and excited that this document is is out and available for everyone now. Yes. How many years has it been since the last one? Has it been more than five? Something yep. Long? I think it was 2015 was the last one was published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to start today by asking, and this is such a large document, and I just want our audience to know, we're not going to touch on everything in the document. We would like people, of course, to go and read it. This is a very lengthy, very comprehensive update, and we will put the link in our show notes so you can just click on it and then you can, they can go right to it. I wanted to start by asking you about ovulatory dysfunction. Is ovulatory dysfunction more common in women with obesity, and has this always been in the case, or is the new is there new data that's been discovered? Uh, so the answer is yes. That ovulatory dysfunction is more common in in women with obesity. With um, and you see a little bit of that. What we kind of refer to as like a dose dependence, where that the the increasing BMI seems to be increasingly associated with more dysfunction in menstrual cycles and ovulation as well. I think this is not new data. This is something that we've seen consistently for several years going you know, back to the early 2000 trials on weight in PPCOS. But I do think um, that we're continuing to see it. And as obesity has increased over the last 30 years that we've, you know, it's just been more profound and meaningful that there's just more women with obesity who are with then it's sort of indirectly then are also having more ovulation dysfunction. So we've been consistently seeing that. Yeah. Has the, has any of the ratios of the BMI index changed drastically in the last number of years since the last update? I, not since the last publication, I think there's not as much, we're not seeing as much of an increase of just total obesity, but there has been an increase in the extreme obesity levels that that is continuing to rise. Um, and so something that we're looking out for. And I think, you know, some of the newer data that's come out is in the weight loss trials. So most of those trials and, and you know, you can read in there for the, I think one of the things the document does really well actually is highlight all of the weight loss trials, but one of them specifically was looking at ovulation dysfunction. And what the few of them have shown is that women who have ovulation dysfunction and then lose weight, those are the ones who actually benefit the most from weight loss, as opposed to the sort of regular, more unexplained infertility aren't getting quite that benefit. So I think that's some of the newer data that we're seeing about ovulation dysfunction, that with weight loss, we are seeing some resumption of menses and then resumption of ovulation and, and spontaneous conceptions. Has, has anything in the, in the new document in this update uh, indicated, is there any correlations between age, obesity, and in any of these dysfunctions? Well, so I would say that age is a risk factor that most, um, most obesity, is, the onset is after the age of 19. Some of the data, when you refer to age, Jeff, it makes me think of the like aneuploidy data that's been coming out about obesity. And, you know, obesity is so complicated that we're, we've been trying and trying to understand the pathophysiology is how obese, how is obesity affecting reproduction? There's been a lot of questions about egg quality in what role does that play? And so we assumed, I think for a long time that we were going to find that women with obesity had more aneuploidy either in their miscarriages or in their 
embryos that are genetically tested. And that's been consistently shown to be not the case that when we look at embryos that had pre-implantation genetic testing, trophectoderm biopsies, that we're pretty consistently in a number of papers now showing that the women with a high BMI do not have higher aneuploidy rates, that it's about equal. And then there's a couple of other papers who have, that have come out and shown that when you analyze miscarriage products of conception and send those for either cytogenetic or SNP microarray, that you're seeing actually that obese women are more likely to have euploid losses, suggesting that, you know, whatever that pathology is, that it's, it's not through a, an aneuploidy mechanism. So is there correlations then between miscarriage rates and obesity? So yes, fairly consistently, we've been showing that, although it's relatively modest that when you pull all of those papers and look at the odds ratios and the relative risks that they're reporting, it's somewhere between 1.2 and 1.9. And so there is some correlation and association there, but it's not high. And I think the data is you know, relatively biased by that obesity is quite diverse that not one woman with a BMI is just like of 30 is just like every other woman with a BMI of 30. And so it's pretty complicated that I think we are underestimating why a miscarriage happens when we look at just BMI, as opposed to the hundred of other things that are playing a role at that same time. I want to, to take a moment. I want to circle back. And for a lot of our listeners, this is your first time on the show and, and they might not be as familiar with you. I wanted to ask what brought you to this particular area and study of, of fertility and, and reproductive medicine? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. It's something I've been interested in for a long time. I did my residency at the University of Chicago and Dr. Mary Stevenson was my mentor there, who is um, you know, internationally renowned for her work on early pregnancy loss and recurrent pregnancy loss. And so we actually wrote one of the first papers looking at miscarriage products of conception. And so from there, I, I like the physiology of it. I think it's really fascinating. I think women with obesity have some extra bias that they have to deal with in the healthcare system. And so I find that I really like caring for them. And I think they need a little extra attention and, and empathy in the care that we provide for them. And then from residency, I did a fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis. And part of the reason I went there was because Dr. Kelly Moley had an obese mouse model that she was working on. And so we were analyzing things like weight loss and antioxidants to see if we could improve oocyte quality as well as, you know, a myriad of other things that she was studying there. So since then, I've just had a, a really high interest and a high empathy level for these women and trying to not just continue to show that there's an association between obesity and loss, obesity and infertility, but how can we make that care better for them? I'm speaking today with Dr. Christina Boots, who is uh, here to talk to us about the most recent uh, ASRM Practice Committee document update on obesity and reproduction. Dr. Boots, are there any best practices that can be recommended to providers at this time who are, are dealing with patients who may be struggling with obesity before, during fertilization, or even seeking fertility treatment? Yeah, I think there are. And I think this is a I'm going to give you a really long-winded answer here because I think it's multifold, but I think one of the first things is that we as physicians need to recognize that obesity is truly a disease, that it is not a choice, that it's not simply just willpower that has gotten them into this position, and that it is incredibly unlikely that the woman who just walked into your office has never tried to lose weight or been told to lose weight in the past. And so I think we have to acknowledge a little bit of that weight bias that is in all of us and that they've probably seen a lot throughout their life from 
friends and family, but certainly also in the healthcare system. So I think one thing is just remembering to practice that empathy and recognizing that, that that is the truth. I think the second thing we need to remember is that, as I mentioned earlier, that obesity is not all created equal, that BMI is really an oversimplification, that the purpose of BMI is a really simple calculation that we can measure in our office that is supposed to be balancing the sensitivity and specificity of predicting health outcomes that come from having excess body fat. So it's certainly not perfect. It doesn't tell us about the body fat distribution. And so we know that central adiposity increases the risk for ovulation dysfunction more than peripheral adiposity. It doesn't speak to us about the duration of that BMI. You know, that we know that kids and young women who have obesity in adolescence, that that predicts ovulation dysfunction even better than, you know, current BMI does that I think it doesn't actually predict lifestyle always that, you know, just because they're obese, it doesn't mean we know exactly what they're eating or not eating and what activity level there is. And I think on the flip side of that, that I think, you know, the sort of third thing besides recognizing the limitations of the BMI is that we're really doing a lot of preconception counseling here that we as fertility specialists have this unique moment where we can talk to them or we can pause for a minute. It doesn't have to be a long minute, but to really do some good preconception counseling. And if it's simply just, you know, changing what we, what we're eating and improving the quality food is medicine, right? That we talk about that, that increasing the activity levels that weight loss may result from those recommendations. But even if it doesn't, I think there's gotta be some improvement in overall health by making some of those changes. And then certainly ruling out things like thyroid disease and recognizing not just diabetes, but insulin resistance and pre-diabetes that catching that A1C that's 5.6, which is technically normal, but you know, talking to them about that, these are great moments of motivation. So I think getting some really good counseling in, and then we forget about the power of preventing additional weight gain that, you know, even if this visit doesn't result in weight loss, that just by not you know, taking, maybe making some of these changes that we've talked about helps not increase the weight gain, especially that we know some of which is going to come in the midst of that pregnancy that hopefully will be the results of all of this. Yeah, I want to step back for a second here and ask you then, then is, is, is there many gen- genetics arguments? I mean, when we get into talking about diabetes or we get into talking about, you know, are, are there, are there genetic concerns that, that come up? So genetic concerns, you mean in like in the, on their offspring, in the kids? Is well, that what not, or that they are the product of, you know, a familial line of, you know, well, my great aunt had diabetes and, you know, think, think, I guess yeah. things of that nature, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know diabetes is, um, has a strong inheritance patterns. PCOS has really strong inheritance patterns. And for sure that happens in obesity too, that there are pretty good, you know, transgenerational studies, especially at least in the mice, but some in humans as well too, that when moms are obese while they're carrying their pregnancy, that increases the risk for cardiovascular disease and weight gain in their children as well too. And of course, you know, these are always hard to kind of piece out the socioeconomic and the culture and, you know, it's not like you can just give up food the way you can give up cigarettes. Like it's, you have to keep eating, but changing that is such a genetic, socioeconomic, cultural origins and all of that. I'd say those cigarettes are pretty hard too for a lot of people. Yeah, no, they're hard too. But <laughs> studies yeah. have shown. Yes, no, yes. I, I, uh, uh, I want to ask you too, uh, going back to BMI again, it sounds like there's just become an over-reliance on it or is that just an oversimplification I, of it? Is it, yeah, no. I think that's true. I think that's true. You know, this paper does a good job, I think, of addressing the document. I mean, addressing um, 
that you know most IVF centers in the U.S. and certainly internationally have some BMI cutoffs. And I do think we oversimplify that. That you know, again, we could be looking at not just what is her BMI, but what is her age, what is her height, where is her obesity, you know, where is the adiposity located, what other comorbidities does she have. So I think the document comes out and says that it is reasonable, but it should be focused, that we should not be making cutoffs based on BMI alone, that we really have to be really thoughtful about who we're restricting access to, you know, making families to. Well, before, before we run out of time, I want to, I have one more question for you. What do you think the committee would like the providers to walk away with in, in, in taking the information in this update and transferring it not only to their own knowledge, but also things that they can maybe share with possible patients or even existing patients? Yeah, I think this does, this document just does a really good job of compiling all the evidence that's out there. And so that you're not having to kind of tweeze through a lot of things. So I think that's product number one. I think number two, that I that I hope that as we recognize, you know, the limits of, of BMI, that we're really taking thoughtful pause about when a woman comes in, who we should be really encouraging time off to focus on lifestyle improvements, and who we're limiting access to. And, you know, my example is this like young woman with ovulatory dysfunction. I think it makes a lot of sense to, to help her, you know, make some lifestyle changes. I think when we are suggesting that to someone to that, that we also recognize that the five minute education that we provide in our reproductive endocrinology and fertility consult is just not enough that obesity is a disease in and of itself. It has a specialty that, you know, there are obesity specialists out there and they really need a multidisciplinary team to take care of them. And so making sure that we have good referral sources for them so that they're meeting with an obesity specialist that they wanted and a nutritionist, a mental health provider that having some, you know, behavioral cognitive counseling can go a long way in that, in that course too. And then I think the opposite is that older woman that, you know, is overweight. And if she's 38, making her take a year off, I think is going to be more detrimental than if it's possible for her to get in to do an egg retrieval. I think this data about obesity, not linking with aneuploidy, that there maybe is compelling, maybe some compelling data that we should be saying, you know, bank some embryos now, then focus on your lifestyle and come back and use them. And and that is not written in the document. That is my personal opinion about it. But I think I hope that that's what, you know, we're going to start looking into out there and seeing some data on, on whether that's beneficial. I was talking with specialists from Vanderbilt recently about that very topic and that the oh. hope is that, of course, the, the big thing about banking eggs and, and, and saving them is, is you know, it all comes down to insurance and will companies yeah. cover it? And hopefully, hopefully, you know, we'll continue to move forward with that overall. My thanks today to Dr. Christina Boots for being able to come onto the show. It was an absolute pleasure. And I, we've got so much to talk about with this. And again, people, please click on the link, go read this wonderful update. Uh, I, I hope we can have you back on soon. Uh, that would be great, Jeff. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Fantastic. Please rate and subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. 
The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.